this is A Million Other Choices, and I am your host, Kim. Quite a while ago, I came across a story that I was going to cover, and then when I started to look into it, it looked very serial killer-ish. And that kind of intrigued me because I have actually not covered, nor have I ever identified, any actual serial killer living and preying in the Calgary area. So I've been doing some digging, and today we are going to be talking about some unsolved murders of women, some in the sex trade going back to 1976 up to 1993, in where there was kind of a rash of murders of young women, all technically unsolved. And a couple have some good suspects, but there's been no closure for the families. So we're going to go through them in chronological order. And if you were living in or around Calgary at the time, and you remember anything or heard anything, you know, anything, you know what to do. Do the right thing and let's see if we can get some answers for some of these families. It might be too late in some cases for justice, but it's never too late for answers. And if you watch the news, you might have seen that in November 2023, a man was arrested for a 47-year-old murder that appears very serial killer-esque from here in Calgary. But as of today, he hasn't had his day in court because the trial hasn't occurred yet, and police have not said that they can link him to any other unsolved murders in the area. But we're going to start with her murder. She was 16-year-old Pauline Brazil. Pauline and her sister Nancy were Métis, which if you're not familiar with that term, it is one of the three distinct groups of Aboriginal people in Canada, being Métis, First Nations, and Inuit. Métis people are descendants of First Nations people who married Scottish or French settlers. Nancy and Pauline had moved to Calgary in late 1975 from their home in Yorkton, Saskatchewan. Pauline was a teen mom with an infant daughter at the time, and had both they had both gotten jobs here, so they decided to stay. They were living with their aunt on the west side of the city, and on January 8, 1976, Pauline left her aunt's place with a friend to go for pizza around 2.30 a.m. at Pepe's, which is near 17th Avenue and 7th Street Southwest. They left the restaurant after eating, and on the walk back, she realized that she'd lost one of her gloves. So she alone went back to retrace her steps, and apparently she did make it back to the restaurant where she did not locate her gloves and then left to go home again. Her body was found stabbed to death a few hours later, dumped on the side of Jumping Pound Forest Reserve Road, which is near Cochrane. She was only partially clothed, so sexual assault was suspected. And when asked about her case 38 years later, her her father and Nancy both agreed that the police did everything that they could to solve her case at the time. And RCMP inspector Brene Brown said that the search for Pauline's killer has never ended over the past 47 years. Throughout the years, we have always been hopeful that the person responsible would be held accountable. And that becomes possible when in 2021, RCMP and Calgary police decided to team up and use genetic genealogy. They don't get into specifics, but I'm assuming Jedmatch would be the way that they went. And in November of 2023, we were able to arrest 73-year-old Ronald James Edward of Sundry, Alberta. He had pled guilty to sexually assaulting an 18-year-old sex worker in September 1989 and had been sentenced to 10 years behind bars for that. He had attacked her with a hunting knife, but she had managed to escape out of a window and survive. At the time, the prosecutor called him a human time bomb to repeat offend, but the defense said that he was remorseful and planned on stopping drinking, which he felt was the fuse for the attack. 
It's odd that I haven't been able to make any connection between other attacks in the 13 years between Pauline's murder and this woman's attempted murder. However, they could very well be in the process of testing DNA from other cases around those years for matches to Ronald. However, one thing that we've learned is that as much as we'd hoped that the capture of Willie Picton would have put an end to the murders of sex workers in Vancouver's East End, it didn't. Um, They continue to happen, so it's a frightening fact that more than one serial killer is operating at any given time in just about any region of the world. The FBI estimates that in the U.S. alone, there is at least 50 of them just walking around killing right now as we speak, and that's sort of one for every state at the least. About six months before Pauline's murder, on July 1st, 1976, 18-year-old Tara Jane White was last seen in her hometown of Banff around 6 p.m. by a family friend who they said their goodbyes and parted ways. Tara had just finished her first year at the University of Calgary and was working on a bachelor's degree in science before going on to med school. She had a job as a waitress at the Namtaija Lodge near Lake Louise. She was suspected initially of being a runaway, something her mom Bev, who unfortunately suffered from severe depression at the time, resented. So she had actually investigated her disappearance pretty much on her own for like 24 hours a day for 16 days until she finally succumbed to her depression and took her own life. Tara's body was found on March 24th, 1981 in a shallow grave in Morley, Alberta on the Stony Reserve. It is believed that she was picked up by a hitchhiker and murdered. Her case was part of the 1980s highway murders, but has not been solved. I wasn't able to find much on the condition of her body or her cause of death, but it was deemed to be a homicide. Now, this next case has never officially been deemed homicides, but there has never been a solution as to what happened and who may have been involved. And the family still very much wants answers as to what happened to their daughters. Back in 1976, the area of Calgary, now known as Valley Ridge on the west end of the city, used to be a place called Happy Valley, which was both a campground and an amusement park with a merry-go-round and wading pool, and at the time was not actually within the city limits as Valley Ridge is today. And when driving out west of Calgary towards Callaway Park, you will still see a blue overpass bridge that I always thought looked kind of out of place. You never see anyone walking or driving over that bridge. It's just kind of there. Well, it used to be called the Happy Valley Overpass, and under that blue bridge on the embankment side on Sunday, February 15th, 1976, the bodies of two fully clothed teenage girls was found with their arms entwined with each other. There were no visible wounds and also no evidence of having died of exposure, even though it was February. The girls were identified as Patricia, known as Patsy McQueen, and Eva Dvorak, both best friends and both 14 years old. Patsy lived at 2220 37th Street Southeast in the area of town on the opposite end of town called Forest Heights, and Eva lived at 3131 30A Avenue Southeast in the area of Dover. Both Eva and Patsy attended Bazelgat Junior High School, which is right in the middle of both their houses. Eva was in grade 8 and Patsy was in the 9th grade. And actually, they had been expelled from school three days before their deaths for having alcohol on their breasts and had been staying with friends since that, avoiding their families. And there was a witness at their school that said that the girls both used drugs like LSD and marijuana. 
However, the autopsy wasn't able to find a cause of death for them and didn't find the levels of drugs in their system that would have maybe contributed or caused their deaths. It, it, it was believed that the bodies were placed under the bridge and was not where they had died. So although they couldn't officially rule their deaths a homicide, someone had been with them. Witnesses also stated that they had gone on to party after party after being expelled from school, and they were last seen at about 12.30 a.m. on February 15th on 9th Avenue and 12th Street Southeast hitchhiking. A neighbor did stop and offer a ride, uh, but they had declined for some reason. Their bodies were fully clothed, so there was no sexual element. The two theories are either strangulation, however, there was no marks on either of the girls' necks, smothering, which could have been positional because they believed that possibly they had huffed an inhalant. Now, I did my research, and in 1982, the National Journal of Medicine published an article that they had found a technique on identifying inhalants in the blood by using some kind of combustible gas method. And that wasn't available in 1976, so it is quite likely that they both died of huffing, which is, of course, very dangerous and can cause sudden death. However, two people dying at the same time is a bit improbable, and they were definitely dumped there, so panic and dumping the bodies isn't out of the question. I've included their deaths here as unsolved because the family still wants to know what happened to the girls. So if you knew Eva or Patsy or have any information, I would implore you to come forward. If they died accidentally in your presence, it is unlikely after all this time that there would be horrible legal consequences and your conscience would certainly be a lot lighter if you came forward now. On September 16, 1976, 20-year-old adventurer Melissa Ann Rahorik had a couple of days off from her job as a cleaner at the International Hotel and planned to hitchhike to see some sites outside of the city. Hitchhiking was something she did a lot, and she actually had a notebook of names and phone numbers of people all around North America of people that she had met on the road. She left her room at the YWCA that morning wearing a denim skirt, jean jacket, and red blouse with white buttons, and her body was found later that same day in a ditch along the Trans-Canada Highway, about 20 kilometers west of the city limits. She had been strangled, and there were signs of a struggle at the scene. Her red shopping bag that she used as an overnight bag was found near her body and still contained her wallet and $5 in cash, as well as some toiletries. She was found fully clothed, and I couldn't find anything to confirm or deny she had been sexually assaulted before her death. Then one case that I found that police do believe was that was committed by the same person that had killed Melissa is that of Barbara McLean. Barbara had moved to Calgary from Inverness, Nova Scotia, just after high school. She got, uh, she got a job first at the Scotch and Sirloin restaurant as a hostess, and then moved on to the Royal Bank at the Palliser Square. On the night of February 26, 1977, her and her boyfriend were at the Highlander Hotel Tavern when they argued and Barbara left him there and decided to hitchhike home. Her fully clothed body was found strangled beside a gravel road near 80th Avenue and 6th Street in the Northeast. Now, Barbara had been sexually assaulted prior to her death. Both cases were stone cold until this guy named Gary McCoster, committed suicide by hanging. But that's not the interesting part. The interesting part was that Gary had hung himself just hours before the police were to question him about the murder of a 14-year-old girl in Edmonton. Now, why would an Edmonton murder be important to a Calgary case? 
Well, at the time of Barbara's disappearance and murder, Gary had been working for a moving company and that moving company set up their employees to stay at the Highlander Hotel. And it turns out that he was in fact in Calgary at the time of Barbara's murder. Gary was also a suspect in the murder of a 17-year-old girl named Mary Goudreau from Edmonton on August 2nd, 1976. At the time of Marie's murder, he had just been released from prison after serving an 11-year sentence for a 1982 rape and subsequent sexual assault committed while on parole in 1988. It is also interesting that police feel that Barbara and Melissa's murders were committed by the same person, and if that same person was McCass Stoker, uh, and he killed them, and then at least two other women in Edmonton, then he was definitely a serial killer. But we can't consider Barbara and Melissa's murders solved because we have no proof. And technically, McCoster was only a person of interest in Barbara's case. Then we have the very strange case of 12-year-old Kelly Cook. She was living with her family in Standard, Alberta, when she received a phone call after school from a man that identified himself as Bill Christensen. Now, Christensen was a very common last name in Standard and around that area, so she had agreed to babysit for him. She was picked up on April 22, 1981, by a man in a car. Her mom saw the car, but not the driver. She was found strangled and tied with rope in the in the Chin Lakes near Tabor. There was no sexual assault, which made the police question the motive for her killing. I'm going to cover this case very soon because it is very strange. Kelly's murder has never been solved. Next, we have Elaine Kashner, a 26-year-old sex worker who had been working the streets of Calgary for about eight years, originally from Saskatoon and described as so full of life she didn't let much get her down. She got into a brown car, like a Chevy or a Pontiac, on July 19, 1986, telling a friend that he was a regular customer of hers. He was described as between 30 to 40 years old, about 200 pounds, full beard, and wearing glasses with dark hair down to his collar, who the witness described as as fat and dirty looking. He was wearing a blue and white sports team's jacket and had pockmarked skin. Elaine's brown pinstripe jacket and red purse have never been found. Her body was found dumped off the Little Jumping Pound Creek Bridge on Highway 68 by a fisherman. She was also fully clothed and had been suffocated. On New Year's Day 1987, 21-year-old Annette Lager, who had moved from Victoria two years earlier, was finishing some secretarial courses up and told her mom Catherine she was working in a retail store but was actually making ends meet in the sex trade. She called to arrange a date with a regular customer on January 1st from the Continental Plaza on 3rd Avenue downtown for the next day, but she was never seen alive again after returning to what at the time was known as the Stroll, an area between 2nd Street and 2nd Avenue Southwest. Her body was found June 4th in a culvert off of Highway 10, just south of Drumheller, Her body was too decomposed to determine the cause of death, but it was ruled a homicide. On June 22, 1987, police located the body of Denise Lapierre in the back alley of the 100 block of 20th Avenue Northeast. Um, Now, her body was deemed to be a homicide, but I have no other details about her case. Then we move on to a case with a very strong suspect, but no resolution. And this was the case that started my whole rabbit hole of serial murders. And that is 17-year-old Joanne Shaver. 
I was initially interested in this case because the coverage of her murder was terrible. I mean, I know they used different terminology back in 1990, but the headlines were downright disrespectful. Joanne had been born in Calgary to her parents, Helen and Cecil, and things were okay at home until she was about 12 when her more feral nature came out and she ran away from home a lot to spend time with friends on the streets. Even at the tender age of 12, she had dabbled in the sex trade as a way to make money. She dropped out of school in grade 8, where her then-principal referred to her as a bit of a cranky kid. I mean, God forbid anyone try to help her with her angst she was clearly having about something. And the situation at home became untenable, and she was deemed a ward of the province and went to live at Woods Homes, which is like a group home for troubled teens. Her parents were aware of how she made money, but her mom was in denial about it. Her dad, who was a military man, was not happy about the situation, but he loved his daughter dearly, regardless of her life choices. Joanne had gotten in with the wrong crowd, and there wasn't any getting her out of it. Her mom had said of her, she might have done some bad things, but she certainly wasn't a bad person. In 1989, she did spend the holidays with her family, and her mom, Helen, reported to the Calgary Herald that they had a very good visit, and I'm glad that she has those memories to hang on to. Joanne had left Wood Homes in September of 1989 and then went back to the streets to continue working, now kind of addicted to the money. On January 9th, 1990, her partially nude body was found dumped in a ditch beside Shepherd Road around 88th Street and 162nd Avenue Southeast. She had numerous bruises and scratches on her body, and there were bruises and tears on her vaginal area. Now, listen to this article in the Calgary Herald that was published January 13th, 1990, just beside an article about the hundreds of people that attended Joanne's funeral. It says, Squad Arrests 12. Twelve women were arrested on the downtown hooker stroll by vice detectives two days after a Calgary juvenile prostitute was discovered murdered, and one of the females, all of whom were charged with communication for the purposes of prostitution, uh, said Vice Unit Staff Sergeant Bob Barrett. Barrett said detectives are always checking women on the stroll to ensure they are not juveniles. When they find juveniles working, they charge them and turn them over to the appropriate authorities. This, this, stupid. Anyways, that same morning, 29-year-old James Arthur Link was arrested at his mom's apartment on 90, at 9930 Bonaventure Drive Southeast. And what did they have on this guy? Well, just over a week before Joanne's murder, he had been released from prison where he had been serving a four-year stint for sexually assaulting a sex worker. Well, that's not very much. Okay, well, he also matched the general description of the man that was last seen with Joanne. Still not that much. They also found three hairs of Joanne's in his truck and a fiber from her sweater, and one of her hairs was found on her body. Well, that's quite a bit, actually. Well, don't get excited about this little matter, because it went to trial in November of 1990. He was acquitted by the judge for lack of evidence. Actually, the judge took issue that the likelihood that James Link sexually assaulted Joanne didn't mean that he murdered her. In the eyes of the law, likelihood and probability are not the same thing. So James walked out of the courtroom along with Joanne's family. Well, not alongside of them. Cecil and Helen had run out of the courtroom as soon as it was clear he was being acquitted. And they told reporters, in this whole bloody court case, the police were put on trial. Every witness was put on trial. Everybody but the bloody accused. It just appalls me. 
the police considered the case closed regardless because they were they were pretty sure that Link had done it. But they didn't believe that he was involved in any other murders in the area. His acquittal was appealed by the Crown Prosecutor's Office, but it was denied all the way to the Supreme Court. And the murders continued. On June 20th, 1991, 21-year-old Shauna Vanderbash was working as a hairdresser for Moda Design, but did some escort work as a bit of a side hustle. She was last seen at the Tasmanian Ballroom at a fashion show around 1.30 a.m. when she left with a friend who gave her a ride to the corner of Southland Drive and McLeod Trail. And later that morning, around 8.30, her nude body was found on the side of a rural road close to the prettiest turnoff north of Highway 22X. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find much to go on on Shauna's murder. Daryl Jans did an episode of Crime Stoppers reenacting her case on Channel 3 in 1996, but darned if I could find it. Jennifer Jans was a child that had grown up in Calgary, growing to gymnastics, ballet, and doing well in school. But trouble had started in seventh grade, and she wound up dropping out of school in ninth grade. Her parents set her, sent her to a Bible camp out in Texas, and she had started to turn things around. She enrolled at James Fowler High School and got herself a job. But the streets had a draw for her, so she couch flopped with friends and just kind of lived around. But her mom always made sure that she knew she was welcome home. And she did stay in regular contact with her parents, even when living on the streets. On July 12, 1991, Jennifer called her mom from the Rocky View Hospital, where she was being treated for a very bad kidney infection. She told her mom she was being released finally and she wanted to come home for supper. She was seen on security cameras leaving the main doors of the emergency room that evening. But a month later, her badly beaten body was found in a shallow grave in a construction site near Valley Ridge Drive. Her cause of death had been blunt force trauma to the chest. 17-year-old Jennifer Joyce had been orphaned in 1986 when her mom died in a car crash and she went into foster care. She had moved to Calgary with her mom and brother in 1979 from Ontario. She had been living in an independent living facility and on her way to aging out of the system when she was reported missing on August 30th, 1991, when she didn't return to the group home at curfew. Her body was found on October 6, 1991 in a shallow grave near 77th Street and 13th Street Southwest, just two kilometers from where Jennifer Jans had been found. There were no reports that say that she had been working in the sex trade. Her group home social worker said she was in every way a very average kid. On January 18, 1992, Anita Gilvanash's body was found in the Inglewood Bird Sanctuary. She was a known drug user and possible sex worker, uh, and literally that is all I know about poor Anita's case or what she was really like in life. Keely Louise Pincoot was 29. She was the mother of two working as a waitress. She had aspirations to become a model. She was reported missing on November 7, 1991, and on March 11, 1992, her skeletal remains were found in a wooded area two kilometers northeast of Cochrane, known as Lover's Lane, also in a shallow grave. There is no evidence that Keeley was involved in sex work. On August 8, 1992, around 68th Street Southeast, the body of Jean McMaster was found. No information about the cause of death or if Jean was in the sex trade or not. Um, she was transgender. Tracy Modder was 26 and described as mellow and shy and the mother of two sons, born originally in Oshawa. 
She moved to Calgary in 1977 and went to Bones High, but got pregnant with her son when she was only 14. She had another son a few years later and had worked as a waitress before turning to the sex trade because the money was better to provide for her sons. She was living in an apartment building in the Southwest and befriended the building manager who often watched her son while she was out working. And in the fall of 1992, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer and had to undergo chemo treatments. She left on the evening of August 28th to make some money to pay for her sons to fly to Ontario to be watched by their grandma while she underwent her treatments. She never came home that night and her oldest son showed up on the building manager's door frightened. She was reported missing to the police around 7.30 that night. Her body was found three days later, beaten and stabbed in a field off Garden Road Southeast. Her oldest son, who was 11 when she died, um, as a teenager, he took to the streets to try and investigate his mom's murder. He said, quote, I was more careless at that age, so I didn't care about what happened to me. I just went to everybody I thought could have been involved, and I just started asking questions. I didn't have a childhood. It made me an adult. Uh, as he was only a teenager, he wasn't kept in the loop by police about his mom's murder. He never got any closer to an answer than they did. Uh, but he did feel that she probably was familiar on some level, level with her killer. Then on February 12, 1993, 21-year-old Rebecca, Rebecca Butillier went missing. Rebecca was originally from Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, but her father died when she was only a toddler, and her mom and her moved to Calgary. As a teenager, she got pregnant at 18. Her mother started to suspect she had a little bit of a secret life, and she did. She had been working in the sex trade on 3rd Avenue and 4th Street when she got into a blue car. A month later, she was found partially clothed on a construction site off of McKnight Boulevard and 68th Street. She had been stabbed to death. A couple of clues were found, but nothing came of them. One was three large plastic bags of canola seeds and some clothing belonging to another sex worker who was tracked down and recalled a bad date that had attacked her inside his car, forced her to undress, and then pushed her out of the vehicle. But she couldn't give any details about what his face was like and was reluctant to press charges to have the matter looked into for leads. What was never found and was possibly kept by the killer was her black suede waist-length coat, which was cinched by a black belt with brass buckle, and her black purse and her knee-high leather black boots. In 1993, it is known that Calgary police met with FBI profilers to try to find some links between some of the cases, but no findings were ever released about that. However, there is some serious speculation that at least Luke Gregory might have been responsible for both Tracy and Rebecca's murder at, at the very least, if not more than that. John Ellor, whose sister Teresa was murdered in Quebec, has done some pretty meaty research into our Calgary Unsolved Murders. So let's go through some of what he found out. Luke Gregory was a resident originally of Quebec. In 1980, 1981, he assaulted a woman in a parking lot in Sherbrooke by choking her. Then in 1983, he assaulted a sex worker in Montreal. In 1985, he moved to Slave Lake, Alberta and was arrested for possession of cocaine with intent to traffic. He then moved to Edmonton, where in May 1986, he was charged with robbery and got a sentence of four years and 10 years of probation and was released three and a half years later and assigned as a high to medium risk. According to legal documents that John was able to get his hands on, he is ordered to stay away from alcohol 
and told his parole supervisor that supervisor that he regularly is going to go to bars to test himself. He does not attend any kind of counseling. And the only one psychologist that attempted to meet with him terminated the appointment and said that there was no benefit to having him re-referred. During one check-in with his supervisor in 1991, he had a black eye and some scratches. He said that he intervened on behalf of a woman that was being beaten up. In November 1991, he got a roofing job in Calgary and his parole supervision is moved to Calgary. And then in July 1992, his parole officer notes that his supervision should be updated to mandate that his alcohol consumption be reduced by half, which is stupid. Like, what a stupid thing. Anyways. In September 1992, Luke reported to his parole officer that he made a trip to Banff that was unauthorized, but all he got was a verbal warning about that. On December 3rd, 1992, the body of of a 27-year-old was found beside an apartment building at 1339 10th Avenue Southeast. She was a sex worker whose legal name was Claudette Ansel, but sometimes went by Anne-Marie Savard or Sylvia Potvin. She was known by other sex workers in Inglewood where she worked as uh, under the name Frenchie. There was community outrage about the matter of sex trade workers being murdered, but mostly the communities were concerned about the kind of people that the sex trade workers brought to the neighborhood. It wasn't really concerned for their safety or their lives. On April 6, 1993, Luke was charged with assault with a weapon for attacking a sex worker with a hammer and was released on $200 bail later the same morning. His parole supervision ended on May 2, 1993. And that very day, around 11.30 p.m., he attempts to abduct a young woman, Ada Ewan, from outside her house in Castle Ridge while she was attempting to get into her car. She was able to get away and call police. And while they were actively investigating that matter, 22-year-old immigrant from the Philippines, who was a teacher but in Canada working at a 7-Eleven in Rundlehorn, She disappeared while washing the windows sometime between 12.30 and 1 a.m. named Lelaney Silva, whom one of her many brothers said was like a flower in the spring that didn't get a chance to bloom. Her family of 14 siblings were mostly living in Calgary. Her parents had planned on moving in May of 1993, just one month later. Lelaney's raped and murdered body was found dumped in a ditch at 80th Avenue and 52nd Street in the Northeast, about 10 minutes drive from the 7-Eleven. Her cause of death was strangulation. During a routine check of sexual predators in the area, which is something police do when such cases come to light, just to see where everyone was at the time, Calgary police contacted Luke's parole officer only to learn that his parole had ended the day before. So Luke was arrested and charged with first-degree murder in Lelaney's death and was serving a life sentence until 2015 when he died at the Archambault Prison. So John Elroy feels pretty strongly that Luke is tied to a number of murders in Quebec, including his sister Teresa and Denise Bassinet. Now he struggles to find a very good connection to the murders of Shauna Vanderbash, Jennifer Jans and Jennifer Joyce only because he was living in Edmonton at the time and under parole supervision. But he did have a history of breaking his parole conditions, but finds it suspicious that he reported a trip to Banff when Keeley Pincote and Rebecca Boutillier were both found in the Northwest along a route to Banff. He also points out that Stephen Burns, who was convicted of killing Deline Hempel, 
who was killed in November of 1992 and was missing during the same period that Rebecca was missing. So Delene was found in a shallow grave. Jennifer Jantz, Jennifer Joyce, Keeley Pincoat were also all found in shallow graves. But Stephen Burns, as we remember, committed suicide while in prison. So throughout the years, different investigators have had various opinions of which victims may have been killed by the same killer. And a project was started by the RCMP in 2003 called Project CARE, so that's K-A-R-E, which was started to investigate several women's deaths in the Edmonton area and then was expanded to include Calgary. According to RCMP Sergeant Val LaHaye, who was leading the task force in 2016, all the files within the Project CARE mandate are actively worked on throughout the province. These investigations take us to many places all over Canada. It's important for people to remember that these cases were already thoroughly investigated by, com- by competent investigators. It's our job to go through them for things that may have been missed and analyze the information to see if there's any new strategies to help zero in on the persons responsible. It's not an easy job because, as I've said, they were thoroughly investigated by competent homicide investigators in the first instance. And we didn't have DNA back then and it wasn't tested for. And today we have GEDmatch, the use of genealogy trees to track down family members who could lead to the actual DNA match. Interestingly, I could only find one additional homicide that is unsolved of a woman. Um, No, she doesn't fit the profile of the 1976 to 1993 murders, though, but she's on my list of cases to cover, and that's Brenda Myers. On the evening of March 9th, 2006, Brenda Myers was closing Madison's Cafe, which was located at the time at 3802 Brentwood Road Northwest. At approximately 11.35 p.m., the Calgary Fire Department received a call of a fire alarm at Madison's, and during the incident, emergency services located the body of Myers and determined her death to be a homicide. So, it seems that the murder of sex workers and marginalized young women, at least within the confines of Calgary, has mostly stopped, at least stopped in rapid succession and stopped being unsolved. So perhaps, just perhaps, Luke and Stephen were responsible, but we may never know that. If you have any information, regardless of how small or insignificant you think it is on any of the cases that I've covered today, please contact the RCMP or Calgary Police. I am sure they are more than happy to take any information you might have. Oh, That was a lot of research on a very dark topic. I'm completely spent. So I'm going to be back again in another week with another single case. As always, thank you so much for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.